Well, good morning, everyone. Trust you've all been enjoying the beautiful weather we've been having lately. Certainly a blessing this last week at VBS to have such fantastic weather. Uh, it's really it's good, good weather to go out and sit by the water or curl up in a hammock and read a book. Um, I, I was recently reading an article that was very interesting. Um, it described a, a very large house um, in which those who were both deaf and those who could hear were living together in the same house. In one of the rooms, you see a guy in a chair listening to music in his headphones, rhythmically tapping his, his feet and his hands on his legs, nodding his head, swaying to the beat of the music, pursing his lips. That's as close as a pastor can get to dancing behind this pulpit. Just want you all to know, any further than that, and I lose my job immediately. You've envisioned this guy, his entire body is moving in response to what his ears are hearing. It's obvious he's enjoying himself, listening to a pretty good song, and then a few minutes later, one of the deaf people enters the room and seeing the guy listening to the music and doing his little dance, he thinks, that looks, that looks like fun. I want to give that a try. So he sits down next to him and begins watching him, watching what he's doing and imitating him little by little. Awkward at first, he tries drumming his thighs, slowly catching on, jut jutting his chin out, swaying to the music just like the other. And with a little practice, he begins to catch on. He slowly begins to mirror the other guy's actions pretty closely, and although he got better at keeping the time, following the motions, he concluded that it wasn't as much fun or as easy as it initially seemed. Now, after a while, a third person walks in, and what does he see? What is the scene that he sees? He sees two people, apparently doing the same thing, apparently listening to the same music, but there's a difference, isn't there? big one. First guy hears the music, and his actions are a natural response to what he's listening to. He's hearing the music's rhythm and melody. The second is merely imitating the outward actions of the other person. He's not listening to anything at all. There's an important spiritual parallel here. The dance, or the outward actions, a representative of the Christian life, our lifestyle, how we live, the choices we make. While the music represents the grace of the gospel and the reality of our identity in Christ. See, although we've come to know Christ through grace, we're often like the, the deaf man trying to perform the dance without hearing the music. Our spiritual life is reduced to a series of imitation dance steps that lack the rhythm and melody of who we truly are in Christ. That's why we're studying our identity in Christ this year. What we think and how we live are driven by what we believe about who we are. How you view your identity in life is inevitably going to guide your thinking and the choices that you make. And so if you're coming to church, singing the songs, saying all of the Christianese phrases, maybe even serving somewhere, but your identity is not found in Christ, and you're just going through the motions. You're imitating without hearing. 
You've observed what people do in church. This is how they talk. This is how they walk. This is how they serve. This is how they act toward each other. But it's just going through those motions without the musical drive. You may be sitting here this morning and and that, the, the fun that you thought it was going to be has faded. Your Christian life has become to you a, a monotone record playing on repeat. You get here at the same time, you sit in the same seat, you talk to the same people, listen to the same preachers, and it'll all start to become white noise if it is not rooted and grounded in who you are in Christ. We're to live for the glory of God in our thought and our life, and we need to understand and believe the realities of our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ is a a multifaceted symphony orchestra playing the wonders of Christ and who we are in him. We've already seen many of these realities this summer in our summer sermon series. In Christ, we are chosen and blessed In Christ, we are loved and redeemed. Last week, Nathan proclaimed the reality that we are justified in Christ. This morning, we get to dive into more of these realities and build this orchestra from Romans chapter six. Turn there with me to Romans chapter six. When the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Romans, he composed a beautiful theological work building one argument upon another. To briefly summarize each of these chapters leading up to chapter six, chapter one describes the existence of God and the reality of coming judgment because of sin. Chapter two describes the judgment coming as a result of the law which exposed that sin. Chapter three explains the guiltiness of all people because of sin and the necessity of justification in Christ. Chapter four goes on to describe that justification and how it has always been through faith and uses Abraham as the example of that. Chapter five then describes how through faith in Christ, sinners are made righteous by God, which abounds greater than sin. God's grace abounds greater. And that brings us right into chapter six, where because of salvation, by God's grace through faith in Christ, seen in chapter five, because of that, Paul describes the implications now of being crucified and resurrected saints in Christ. And in Romans six, verses three through seven, we're gonna see three realities of our identity in Christ as crucified and resurrected saints. Three realities of our identity in Christ as crucified and resurrected saints. Let's look at the first one. The first is the reality of your death. The reality of your death. Look at Romans 6.3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. Now, three times in this passage, Paul mentions baptism. Uh, It's important to understand here as we're going through this passage that he is not talking about water baptism here. This is not the sacrament of baptism. 
Misinterpretations of this passage like these, this passage and, and others like this have led many to believe that, there's, uh, that either baptism is required for salvation or that there is some mystical experience that takes place when you're dunked in the water. Uh, and that's just not the case. This is a transliteration, not a translation. Uh, the Greek word used here is baptizo and has been transliterated into an English word that sounds the same. A translation of the word would be immersed or immersion. And so if you reread the passage with that in mind, it sounds more like this. Or do you not know that all of us have been immersed into Christ Jesus, have been immersed into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through immersion into death. The term baptism is used in different ways to describe different things in scripture. And when we hear the word baptism, we typically think of dunking in water, right? That's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of baptism, uh, is that public declaration of a person's salvation, their commitment publicly to identify and follow Christ by being baptized. Scripture describes this specific thing in numerous, numerous different passages. John is seen baptizing people with water in Matthew 3, at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he commands that disciples are to be made and then baptized. After salvation, believers in the New Testament church were baptized. There's three passages here. There's actually many more in Acts where you see people being baptized in water, publicly declaring their faith. Uh, there's numerous others that show this as well. So water baptism is clearly seen and demonstrated and commanded in scripture. That's why we practice it here. However, the New Testament also uses this same term, baptizo, to describe spirit baptism. Through spirit baptism, believers are united with Christ and placed into the body of Christ or immersed, you might say. And this is entirely a work of God that happens at the moment of salvation. Uh, let's look at some passages that show this. John the Baptist described this in Matthew 3. He said, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So you see the same word used twice, baptizo, is the same word there in that passage, but there's a different nature. There's a distinction that's being made between the two. One is with water, the other is with the Spirit. Similarly, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And so spirit baptism seen in scripture is a, a spiritual event, not a physical one. It's the, this spiritual truth that Peter describes also in 1 Peter 3, 21. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So some people point to that passage and say, see, baptism now saves you. So you have to be baptized in water if you're going to be saved. But that would make salvation based on works rather than based on faith. It also completely ignores the corresponding to that at the beginning of the verse that refers back to verse 18, where Christ is seen as the one who accomplishes salvation. Additionally, the verse qualifies that it's not speaking of baptism that removes dirt from the flesh. 
This isn't water that's taking place. It's not immersion in water, but rather a spiritual act of an appeal to God for a good conscience, which is, look at it, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The spirit baptism. It is your immersion into unity with Christ. That's not what we accomplish here when we do water baptism. That is something that God has already done in each one of us who believes at the moment of your salvation. It is a permanent spiritual change that takes place that we then signify in water baptism. James Montgomery Boyce clarifies this word even further by comparing it with a similar word, bapto, which means to dip, so it's slightly different. Uh, He says this, we gain help from classical literature. The Greeks used the word baptizo from about 400 BC to about the second century after Christ. And in their literature, baptizo always pointed to a change having taken place by some means. The clearest example I know to show this meaning of baptizo is a text from the Greek poet and physician Nicander who lived about 200 BC. It's a recipe for making pickles. Everyone just woke up. Pickles. He says this, Nicander says that to make a pickle, that the vegetable should be dipped, bapto, into boiling water and then baptizo, baptized, immersed, into the vinegar solution. Both verbs concern immersing the vegetable in a solution, but the first is temporary. The second act of baptizing the vegetable produces a permanent change in it. And for all who have been immersed into Christ, we too have undergone a permanent change on a spiritual level that has a variety of aspects to it. And the particular aspect that Paul hones in on here in verses three and four is that we have been immersed into Christ's death. It is a certain reality that Paul notes here that if you have been united with Christ, then part of your identity is that you died with Christ. Well, what does that mean that we have died with Christ? This is seen in several other passages as well. Paul notes it repeatedly in Galatians, uh, specifically that this death is a death of crucifixion with Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. The word crucified here is used specifically when more than one person is being crucified at the same time. In Matthew 27, when it is said that Jesus was crucified, that's a different word than what you have here in Galatians 2.20. Jesus was staurao, crucified. We have been sustaurao, crucified together with Christ. It's obvious here, it's not a literal crucifixion, right? Here we all are. No one has wounds in our hands and feet. So then to what extent are we crucified with Christ? In what sense are we crucified with him? Paul clarifies this more later in Galatians 5.24. He says, now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. He clarifies more in 6.14 saying, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see, the reality of 
our death by crucifixion is that at the moment of our salvation, the sin nature within us that we inherited from Adam, the passions and desires of our flesh for the things of this world were put to death. They were put to death in us. This is part of the regeneration where according to Ezekiel 36, the Lord removes the heart of stone from within you. You once had a heart governed by your sin nature, ruled by your sin nature. It was a stone heart, hardened against the things of God, passionately enthralled with the things of this world and yourself. In the context of our passage, Paul even notes in verse two that we are dead to sin. So the logical question that maybe some of you are asking is why then do I still sin? If our sin nature has been crucified with Christ, why is it that I still struggle with sin? One commentator, I think, explains the reality of the death of our sin nature but ongoing impact of our sinful flesh until glorification really well. He says this, you want to know something very interesting. This is great. The greatest transformation in your life has already taken place if you're a Christian. It will be far greater than at your death. Your death will be a subtraction experience. You will just lose your unredeemed humanness. Your salvation was a transformation. You have already been created fit for heaven and God did not do this miraculous work of regeneration, new birth and creation and have in it some component of sin because God can't create sin. Therefore, Paul understands that the new I is not sinning. It is the sin that is still there. The new self is pure and ready for heaven and has holy aspirations and holy longings and loves the law of God. So this new life is the full expression of that life which will fit heaven. So why do we go on sinning? Because we still possess the corpse. It is like a holy seed in an unholy shell, incarcerated and infected with the flesh. Or even a better illustration, a dead corpse is still attached to him. See, our old self has died. The Lord has masterfully crucified our sin nature on the cross with Christ, but we still have the flesh that we live in. Yet despite living on in the flesh, the power of that sin nature has been defeated, as we'll see in more detail in a moment. But our crucifixion is not where this transformation stops. That's not it. The Lord didn't just put to death our sin nature. In our salvation, there is an added reality that comes along with our crucifixion, and that is the second reality, which is the reality of your resurrection. The reality of your resurrection. Look at verses four and five. Paul says, therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. That's what we just looked at. We've been crucified with Christ. So that, it's a purpose statement, Paul is explaining why did this death, why did this crucifixion in Christ come about? Why did this take place? It is so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. We died in order that the Lord might grant to us new life. This is the other part of regeneration. 
Not only has our old stone heart been miraculously and supernaturally removed by God, but we've been granted a new living heart in Christ. Our old self is now dead to sin and alive to righteousness. This is the triumphant declaration of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Through our crucifixion and our resurrection in Christ, we are now new creatures of a new kind, completely different than we were before. Now, this is essential because of our old identity in Adam. Paul explained our identity in Adam back in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. You can read that later. Essentially, our identity in Adam was one of sin, transgression, judgment, death, and condemnation. That was our identity in Adam. That's where we were. That's who who we were before Christ. Paul explained that Adam was a type of Christ. And where the first Adam failed, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded in righteousness and obedience, bringing a new identity of life, grace, justification, righteousness, and eternal life. We have died. Our old self in Adam has died, and our new self has brought to, been brought to life in Christ. And this is not a experiential thing, but a supernatural spiritual thing that takes place within you. It is an internal reality that has external implications. Paul describes this similarly in Colossians chapter two, verses 12 to 14. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In your death, you're separated from your old life, forgiven of your transgressions. The certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you, is taken away and nailed to the cross. All of that making way for the new life imparted to you in order to grant you new power and ability to live in obedience. One commentator describes this new life. He says, the newness Of life, therefore, refers not to a new kind of life the believer is to live, but to a new source of ethical and spiritual energy imparted to him by God, by which he is enabled to live the life to which Paul exhorts later in Romans 12 through 16. The new source he's talking of here of spiritual energy imparted by God is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's called spirit baptism because when you are saved, you're crucified with Christ, resurrected to new life, granted by the Holy Spirit who then takes up residence within you to empower you to live out righteousness. One systematic theology explains this way, the spirit removes the sinner's heart of stone and implants in him a heart of flesh capable of perceiving and loving spiritual truth. 
The affections are thus renewed after the likeness of Christ so that the new man hates sin, loves righteousness, thirsts for God whom he once abhorred and loves the, and rejoices in Christ whom he once regarded as foolish. Here in Romans 6, Paul is establishing the reality and the implications of our identity in Christ that is going to result in the changed life that he's going to describe in the chapters ahead. A changed life that is only possible because of this reality. A changed life that only comes to be and will come to be because of this reality. We looked briefly at Galatians 2.20 earlier. Paul echoes this same thing. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Because of the new life we have in Christ, it is the power of Christ in us that now drives us to live a life of ongoing faith. But even still, with our old life crucified, our new life in Christ, there is still the struggle with our sinful flesh. MacArthur elaborates on what he said earlier. He says, we have been raised to walk in newness of life. We've come out of the grave. Our old man has died and a new man has been born. Our old self is gone. We have a new self. This is recreation, new birth, regeneration. Yet we are still prisoners of a stench that remains from the grave. We are held prisoner by the remnants of our former life. Our very fallenness clings to us. And though we live, we stink. And it is as though we are bound in our grave clothes. That's the reality of our spiritual condition. In Christ, we have died to our sinful nature, our sin nature, but the body of flesh still remains. And so long as we listen to it, beloved, as long as we listen to our body of flesh, we're going to carry out its desires. But we need to live in light of the reality, not of our old self, but of our new self, because our old self was crucified and we have a new life that is in Christ. That brings us to our third reality, Third reality, which is the reality of your freedom. The reality of your freedom. Not only have you died in Christ and been resurrected to new life in Christ, but you have a newfound freedom from sin in Christ. This is the grand conclusion of our death and resurrection. The glorious truth of our death to our old self is amazing and the awesome reality that we have been resurrected with Christ is magnificent but our freedom is now the result that Paul has been building to. This is the result that he's been building up to. Look at verses six and seven. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. This reality is the, the implication. This is the outcome of your death and resurrection. Because you have died and have been resurrected and hidden in Christ in God, you now have a, a new freedom that you did not experience previously. And this is really a turning point for the rest of the book. Paul is going to continue to describe the, the struggle of sanctification in chapter seven and eight. And then later, 
He is going to talk about what your new life in Christ looks like, but he establishes the reality of the crucifixion of your old life, the new life and power that you've been granted in Christ before ever telling you what you need to do. He's telling you how it's even possible that you can do it before he gets to saying, hey, you need to live this way. It's because of the work of Christ on your behalf. If you are in Christ, you are freed from sin. Your body of death has been done away, verse six says. We're done away, it means to to render inactive or ineffective, to make powerless. We once lived in a state where we were completely under the control and rule of our own sinful passions. That's how Paul describes all unbelievers in Ephesians chapter two. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were completely dominated by our flesh. As an unbeliever, every decision that you make is sin because it was nothing that you did for God's glory. You were enslaved to sin. The only way to be freed from that body of sin is to die in Christ and be resurrected to new life. That's what Paul means when he says that you are no longer slaves to sin. By that, he's implying that you you were. You were slaves to sin. William MacDonald explains, he says, the crucifixion of the old man at Calvary means that the body of sin has been put out of commission. The body of sin does not refer to the physical body, rather it means the indwelling sin, which is personified as a tyrant ruling the person. The body of sin is done away with, that is annulled or rendered inoperative as a controlling power. You are spiritually transformed into a new creature with a new ability now to choose whether you are going to live in righteousness or whether you are going to live in sin. You have a new freedom that you didn't have before where you don't have to choose sin. You don't have to. Anybody ever feel when you're tempted like you don't have a choice? Temptation is just overwhelming you? It's not the reality of who you are in Christ. Verse seven, Paul reiterates, for he who has died is freed from sin. That word freed, it's a legal term that was used of a prisoner who had been acquitted. You've been released from imprisonment. The chains fallen to the ground as we just sang. You've been released and you now experience a freedom that you never had before. And this is all meant to be a compelling explanation from Paul for believers to resist the temptation to sin. Though we've been freed from the slavery to sin, we still live in a sinful world with our sinful flesh, but we do not have to obey its desires. We don't have to. We see this in 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, 
but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. You don't, you don't have to give in to sin. You don't have to do it. The problem that Paul was facing uh, with the Roman church was the false teaching of antinomianism. False teachers were creeping in and starting to tell people that because Jesus came, there was no reason to follow the law anymore. They would say, since we're forgiven, because of what Christ has done, our sin causes the grace of God to abound to us. So let us continue then in sin so that God's grace will continue to abound to us more. That sounds foolish and selfish, but you can kind of look in our culture and see this kind of thing. What we've just seen is Paul's response to this foolishness. Chapter five, remember he described the justification that we have in Christ and the grace that abounded to us in spite of our sin. He then starts chapter six by asking the question that was no doubt on many of their minds from the false teaching they were hearing. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? May it never be. This is the strongest Greek negation possible. It could literally be translated, may it never come into existence. Our new life in Christ is one that ought to be characterized by the utmost pursuit of God's glory in all that we do. We've been freed from sin, so why would we continue in it? Because of who you are in Christ, you must be putting aside the old self that is dead and putting on the new self in Christ. Paul continues this theme through the rest of the chapter. If you're looking at your Bible, jump down to verse 11. Even so, he says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your body as in, uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you. You've been freed from sin. It shall not be master over you. You're not under the law, but under grace. Drop down to verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching in which you were committed and have been freed from sin. You have been, having been freed from sin, you've became slaves of righteousness. Your freedom in Christ is not a license to sin. It's not an opportunity for you to say, well, he'll forgive me. It's one little sin. When you're freed from slavery to sin, you commit to submit yourself to Christ and become a servant of righteousness instead. Who we are in Christ spiritually will produce in our lives physically who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ spiritually will produce in our lives physically who we are in Christ. Commentator Douglas Moo puts it this way, it's to keep the kids awake, Moo. He says this, this connection between the indicative of our incorporation into Christ and the imperative of Christian living is the heart of Romans 6. 
Paul, in other words, grounds the believer's present participation in the life, in life, in the spiritual power of Christ's resurrection. Christians then are both empowered and summoned to live a new kind of life by virtue of their participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The natural ramification of our old self being put to death and our new life that we are living is that we are gonna live in such a way that we are avoiding sin. We are pursuing and living out the reality of who we actually are in Christ. It is a foolish assault on the sovereign, miraculous work of the Lord in our lives to continue in sin when he has just freed us from it. We see the same kind of antinomian view of Christianity today that Paul was dealing with in the first century. Believers will say that if you believe and just rest in Christ, then God is going to sanctify you. You can just continue living however you want. It doesn't really matter. God's going to God's gonna change you. You don't have to do anything. You just coast. So they claim faith in Christ. They live their lives however they want, and when they sin, it's somehow God's fault because he's not sanctifying them. This neglects the work that we are to put into our own sanctification. Is God at work in sanctification? Absolutely. You better believe it. Philippians 1.6, I'm confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you, he who started that good work is gonna continue, it will, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. But you can't, you can't cling to that and neglect all the other verses in scripture. Because scripture also calls us to obedience in our new life. It's just one chapter later, Paul says, so then my beloved, just as you have also obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to grow. Continue to be sanctified. Continue to become more like Christ in your life. Salvation is wholly a work of God alone. When you became a believer, it was God who did that work of regeneration in you, granting you the grace and faith to believe. That free gift there's a work of God, the death, resurrection, then is to result in your diligent effort to be conformed to who God has called you to be. It's not a let go and let God lifestyle or a Jesus take the wheel kind of character. This is an all out battle with the flesh is what we see in scripture. It's pedal to the metal, go big or go home, full throttle. We're running after Christ. We're running after Christ-like holiness in our lives. MacArthur again explains, your freedom in Christ is not freedom to sin. Your freedom in Christ is freedom for the first time to do righteous deeds. Your addiction is broken. Paul is not denying our freedom. We have freedom. We're free from the curse of God. We've been freed from the judgment that is to come, freed from the curse of sin, free from sin, sin's enslavement over us, and now we, for the first time, have that opportunity to be obedient. The Lord has so worked to break the enslavement to sin in our lives, not so that we can reshackle ourselves to it. Jump right back into bondage after he's freed us. What foolishness, what insanity. He's done this so that we might for the first time in our lives live the way that we're supposed to live and honor him and find great joy in that. 
Growing up in Texas, I worked several different manufacturing jobs in Houston right out of high school um, for a few years. There were long days, uh, often filled with working in grimy, gross warehouses or out in the sun all day. Um, I'd get home just sweaty and with grease and dirt stuck all over my face and my arms. It was disgusting. My clothes would stink. I'd be covered in warehouse filth and grease and sweat. How foolish would it be if after bathing and becoming completely clean, we to walk out and just put all of those dirty, sweaty, grimy clothes right back on again? I'm like, Tim, what are you doing? Beloved, we do that every time we run back to our sin. And you think that's a gross picture. Scripture paints it even more graphic. Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. That's a disgusting picture. Beloved, we've been freed from sin. We've been freed from enslavement to sin. We're like slaves. Every time we return to our sin, we're like slaves who, having been released, then return to our harsh and abusive taskmasters, willingly subject ourselves to cruel mistreatment yet again. This is the picture Paul paints. In Romans 6, he says it in Galatians 5.1 also, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's plea in Romans 6 is for all believers everywhere to recognize your identity in Christ as crucified and resurrected saints free from sin and to live out who you are in every facet of your life, that who you actually are spiritually would permeate every other area of your life. Paul is a fantastic example of this. We've read it a couple times already. Galatians 2.20, again, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live In the flesh, he acknowledges there's still going to be that ongoing struggle. There's still going to be that temptation with the flesh. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It is a life that is committed to being guided and directed by faith. It is a life that is focused on the truths of Scripture and guided by God's word. It is a a mindset that filters everything you think and do through the truthfulness of God's word. This is what Paul gets to eventually later in Romans chapter 12, verse two. It's our theme verse for VBS. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is an ongoing sanctification that is going to be happening in your life as you are transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Your lifestyle is to be an abandonment of all that the world says is right and true and cling to the the truth of God's word and all that he has called you to be and do. This connection is made in Colossians 3, one through three as well. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, this is a, a first class conditional statement. It means that it assumes the affirmative. 
if you have been raised up with Christ, which you have, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Keep seeking. It's a present active imperative. You are commanded to be continually seeking the things above. Continually, ongoing. There's a stop. There's a pause. There's a going about something else. You're continually to be seeking the things above as you are living out your life. It is diligent and intentional effort being communicated here. It is not lazy, half-hearted Christianity. It is not the Sunday saint. It is purposeful. It is persistent. What does it look like? Verse two, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Another present active imperative Set your mind on things above to give careful consideration to, to be intent on in your mind. Your pursuit of righteousness in Christ is in Christ, not in the things of this earth. The battle for holiness is won and lost in the affections of your mind. And so where do you set your mind? Beloved, what captivates your thinking? Where is it that your mind dwells Where do your affections lie? The Lord has called you to set your mind on things above, heavenly things, godly things, biblical things, righteous things. This is great. Paul just ties it all together. What's the rationale given for this kind of lifestyle in Colossians 3? Look at verse 3. We've seen it all morning. Why? For you've died. You've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Beloved, you've been set free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, do not subject yourself again to yoke of slavery. Why would you? Why would you? How foolish. Must we be? Your old self has died. Your new self has been resurrected. You've been empowered by the, the Holy Spirit to overcome sin. This is who you are in Christ. Christian, this is the music. This is the music. Our identity in Christ so the music that should guide you, should guide every movement, every thought, like a skillful dancer to every beat and rhythm of a song. Don't pretend to hear it. Don't go through the motions. Know your savior. Know who you are in him and let that drive you to be who he's called you to be. This is who you are crucified, resurrected, and free. May your life be a reflection of it.